Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In this series, we'll see the many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece. We'll also be challenged in how we're designed to live out the gospel through the local church. In the second mini-series, Paul takes chapters 5-7 through to explore the implications of our gospel-formed identity in Christ and the way it challenges worldly norms in the ways that we handle our relationships. For more information, please visit www.doxa-church.com. The reading today is from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hey, thanks. So, a great passage to start on as a guest. Glad you're here. We're going to read the whole passage. That was just part of it. Uh, my name's Jeff. I said that earlier, but uh, I do get the privilege of teaching through this. And I want to ask that God would give us direction as we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, we are mindful that you give us your word and you call us to submit to what you say. And you have done that by your spirit, leading uh, men to write down what you wanted us to hear. And so we thank you for the apostle Paul and the words that you gave him to the church in Corinth, that we also know that those words are for us as well. As Paul said, these are for not just one church, but every church. And so we, we wanna submit to what you have to say to us. We ask that you give us a heart of submission that, that is open to your spirit, convicting us, leading us. We do this because we want Jesus to be glorified. And we want to walk in life that you have that is abundant. So help us, we pray in your name, amen. So we're gonna look at church discipline today. Uh, and it's not a topic that comes up a lot in Scripture, um, nor does it happen on the scale that Paul is referring to too often. Uh, in fact, I would say if you are in a missional community or a DNA group or in some kind of committed relationship with other believers where you regularly speak directly to one another, it'll never get to what we're going to talk about today, uh, especially if we regularly lead people to repent of sin and and re rehearse again the gospel in our hearts and minds to each other. So it likely won't happen, but if it does, this is what we want to submit to as God's word teaches us. Now, I know for some of you, as soon as I say church discipline, it went negative for you, right? Whether there was a past experience that didn't go well, uh, so it brings up words of abuse or vindictiveness or judgmentalism, but I want to be really clear, biblical discipline is none of that, okay? In fact, the goal of all discipline in the church is to lead people back to Jesus. That's the goal, and it's to lead them into community. It's redemptive in nature, not rejection, okay? It's not about pushing people out. It's about 
putting people to Jesus, leading them in such a way that they would come back into community and live in a way that is abundant and life-giving. So keep that in mind as we go through this. In fact, I titled the message uh, basically the, The Grace of Discipline because discipline is a gift. It's a, a means of grace that can actually transform us. I mean, if we're honest, we, we like discipline, at least in certain areas, right? Some of you pay people to discipline you in terms of getting a trainer for working out or a dietitian to help you work on the food you eat. Some of you actually see discipline as important because you're involved in the disciplines of particular studies in life. You're involved in a college or you're a professor and so you understand that even the language around study of a particular area we call discipline because it requires someone to call us to submit to something that's true to enter into a rigorous path of study that pushes us to discipline self in our learning. So in that sense, all of us like discipline when it produces good, and that is the goal, just to be really clear. So keep that in your mind as I take us through this text today. In fact, I would say we would be really disappointed if people didn't exercise discipline. For instance, let's say you just found out the college you attended, of which you have a, you know, a certificate on your wall in your office or at home, you received a degree from, you just found out that they didn't faithfully submit to the requirements for accreditation, and so your degree is actually a fake. You would be disappointed that they weren't disciplined, right? Uh, if, if you were to find out that our politicians were not submitting to the very laws that they are trying to uphold, which would never happen, of course, but let's just say that happened, uh, you'd be disappointed with our politicians. If you found out law enforcement was not willing to submit to the very laws they're trying to enforce, then you'd end up with abusive law enforcement. We would not be okay with that. If you found out, parents, that your teachers in the classroom that your kids are going to were not serious about making sure the classroom was a safe place, you would not want to send your kids to school anymore. I remember uh, years ago when Haley first entered into middle school and we were in Tacoma, uh, we decided to give her a phone, which I would take back, not because she doesn't handle it well, but just... You know, the idea of getting kids phones that early, I'm not really excited about anymore. But the reason why we gave her a phone was because she was going to late Jason Lee Middle School. And in that particular case and time, there was some gang violence going on in the school. Now, the administrators did a really good job. I was thankful they were doing everything they could to exercise discipline and make it a safe place. But we wanted her to be able to call us at any point just in case there was some danger at school. So I'm, I'm grateful for discipline. Aren't you? Parents are, if you don't discipline your children, it won't be a safe place for the siblings, right? Uh, I grew up in a household of four boys. I guarantee you, we needed to be disciplined. Otherwise, we probably would have killed each other, right? So thank God for my mom. And I pray thanksgiving all the time for what she had to put up with me uh, and all God's grace poured out in form of, forms of discipline. So I'm grateful. And it's good for the church. The church is called the household of God. It's God's family, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we're to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And so we're supposed to live in such a way as the church to display what God is like. And whenever we don't, we need to be disciplined so that we will because it defames him. We'll come back to that in a minute. Stephen T. Um says this, if discipline is functioning properly in the church, there will be a self-correcting ecosystem. And the glaring examples of hypocrisy that we see would be greatly reduced if not eliminated. 
I've been in some form of church leadership for over 27 years now, and I will tell you I've witnessed far too much hypocrisy. I've witnessed way too much brokenness. In North America, the number of leaders who have fallen is, is just so deeply discouraging to me at times. I watched a lot of my ministry peers not make it. And I, I've wondered many times if someone would have been faithful and courageous early on in their life to directly speak to them about their sin, would it be that maybe they'd still be in ministry because someone would have had the courage to not let them continue in sin that's so destructive? I will tell you, I'm so thankful that I've had that consistent voice in my life with the men and women that God's put around me. I presently have that with the elders and their wives here at this church where if they see something in my life that is not becoming of the gospel and certainly would defame the name of Christ, they talk to me about it. And I'm grateful for that. And I praise God that we have that kind of leadership here and I pray that God helps us to preserve it even through teaching passages like this. A question I think we need to ask because Unfortunately, in the, in the world, the, the name of Jesus has been defamed so much. We should ask the question, why don't we see it happening more? Why aren't we taking sin seriously and then confronting it where needed? Now, I want to say before we go any further, if you're not a Christian here, I want to just, on behalf of the church, ask for your forgiveness for any way that we have defamed the name of Christ by not dealing, dealing seriously with sin. In fact, I hope that even as you listen to this message and you hear us talk about church discipline, what you hear us say is we care too much about the image of Jesus in the world that we don't want to destroy it anymore by our, our lack of uh, a confrontation when we need to confront sin directly. We want to deal with it. We want to deal with it with grace, with love, with, but with truth and sobriety because we know that the reality is God is being defamed because of our own sin that we won't address. Why don't we see it happen more often? Why don't we exercise church discipline? As I even was, you know, looking around for how other people have preached this, just to be clear, I'd already written my message, just not trying to find someone else's message, but just saying like, has this been spoken on a lot? And there's just not a lot of people speaking on this. And you gotta wonder why. Jonathan Lehman wrote a book on this called The Surprising Offense of God's Love. In it, he states that people object to the idea of discipline when, one, they approve the action being disciplined. In other words, they, they don't like spiritual discipline or church discipline because the very behavior that's being confronted is the behavior that they think is okay. They're engaged in it themselves. Which may be one of the reasons why we don't see more churches confronting sin the way God calls us to because we're engaged in it ourselves. Or second, they don't believe that the discipline matches the offense, which there's a good good. Uh, kind of warning there that we are careful not to be abusive, heavy-handed uh, in the way that we exercise discipline. I would add a third, personally. I think sometimes, yeah, it may be that the people engaged in wanting to bring discipline are engaged in the sin themselves so they can't do it, and they don't see it as wrong. Others, I can see, like, maybe it's like we got to be careful, let's not be heavy-handed. I've seen abuses of it, but I would add a third. I think sometimes we're concerned more about what people think of us than we are what God thinks, and so we give in to people approval to avoid offending somebody when we talk to them about their sin and how it's hurting people and others. I'm thankful that we're teaching through a book of the Bible that we, we just kind of go through the text as God gives it so we don't avoid these hard passages because we need this, I believe. In an, in an age when, when we're prone to rewrite God's word to make it fit the cultural norms, 
where, where, we, where we have clear commands, where God says, this is how I want you to live and this is how I don't want you to live. And then we go, yeah, but he didn't really mean that. We need to hear God's word and we need to be faithful to bring appropriate God grace-filled discipline, that God would show up through his people lovingly and say, this is what God says, and this is how he calls us to live. In fact, I, I would say, I think one of the reasons why we see such an abuse of power these days is because we put the rights and the pursuits of personal liberty and happiness above all else, including other people's lives around us. That we're, our, our rights and our happiness and what we want is so much more important than what God wants and how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the church above all other places should take seriously what it looks like to lovingly confront sin in a way that protects the name of Christ, the purity of the church, and you and I as followers of Jesus. Because here's the thing we need to keep in mind, sin not only defames Jesus' name and, and gives a, a, a church a reputation that doesn't look anything like Jesus, but it also hurts you and I individually. We are all hurt when we continue in sin and we don't take it seriously. On the other hand, church discipline protects Jesus' reputation, purifies the church, and it preserves souls. Let's start, first of all, with protects Jesus' reputation. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And are you so arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Now, to be clear, it's likely that it doesn't say that, it doesn't call this woman his mother, so it's likely that his dad either uh, got divorced or his mother died and then his dad remarried. And then that day, the people who were basically available to be married were going to be younger women. So his dad likely marries a younger woman. And now the son is attracted to the new wife and then enters into an inappropriate relationship with her. Now, What's really important to get here, there's a lot of things to get, but one thing that's really important to get is it wasn't only wrong for Christians to do this. It was wrong for Jews to do this. It was wrong for the Greco-Roman world to do this. Like they're going, okay, you guys are talking about how you have this other life that you live in submission to God, but you don't even obey our law, let alone yours. So this was something that was so bad that the people outside of the church are judging the church as people who are so, so off, so immoral, so broken that the fame of Jesus is being completely destroyed, that his name is being tainted, that his image is being corrupted by these people. Now, what's also really important to note is that Paul's focus in this passage will not primarily be on sexual immorality or what this brother did, though he does address it. His bigger concern is that the church does nothing about it. His bigger concern is that the church just sits around and lets this kind of sin that's defaming Christ, that's destroying the church, that's ultimately gonna destroy this man, that they're just doing nothing about it. Instead of mourning, Paul says you're boasting. Instead of grieving, they're full of pride. And we don't know if the pride is in the sin itself, possibly boasting in their newfound freedom in Christ, 
or if Paul is addressing pride in a general sense, referring to the area of spiritual pride around their spiritual experiences. I've observed both over the years. I've seen people continue in sin and say, it doesn't really matter, Jesus has forgiven us, it's no big deal. And to, to that I'd say, you're making a mockery of the cross. To, to know that Jesus paid with his life, suffered for your sin, and God has clearly shown you how bad your sin is by looking at the cross and what Jesus went through for you to just say, it doesn't matter. I'm just gonna keep on engaging in it because man, God's gracious. I don't know if that's what they're doing, but it seems like very possibly that's what they are doing because later on, Paul's gonna address the freedom that they have in Christ and how they're not to abuse it. Maybe that's some of you in the room. It's like, it's no big deal, I'm forgiven. No, we should grieve. We should grieve. Because it, it tells a lie about what our God is like when we sin. See, if you're, if you're new in the, the room and you're not yet a Christian, I want to let you know the word sin in the Bible refers to anything that we would do, whether, whether it's thoughts, uh, our, our motives of the heart, words or actions that are not in line with the character and nature of God. Paul says it this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word glory is the visible expression of the invisible God. And so we are meant to be made in it. We are made in God's image to be glory bearers, to display the truth of what God is like in our thoughts and our motives and our words and our behaviors. And so to fall short of displaying what God is like in our thoughts, our motives, our words, our behaviors is called sin. And that sin tells a lie about God because we were made to be glory bearers. We were made to have people look at each other and go, what is God like? And we could say, look at us. And anytime that we have sinned, we are telling a lie about God and we should be grieved over that. We shouldn't just celebrate the fact that we can sin. We should be grieved that we have sinned and then celebrate the fact that it's been paid for, yes, and we're forgiven, but we don't want to go on sinning. That's a misunderstanding of a grace altogether. Or it could be not that their pride was in the sin that they were engaged in or this man was engaged in, but maybe it's possible but that the Christians were boasting in their spiritual gifts or their spiritual uh, experiences. And I've seen that happen before as well where people are boasting in the manifestations of the spirit that they've experienced, which we'll get to later on in this book, but they're living in ways that are unloving and ungodly and broken. And so they're boasting in their spiritual experiences while at the same time their lives are displaying a, a mess in the church, a brokenness that, that, just, that, that really tells a lie about God. I don't know which one it was, and maybe that's you, and I would encourage you, if you're gonna boast in anything, boast in your need for a savior. And that, man, I, 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 I fall short. I do sin, and I need the grace of Jesus Christ. I've also, unfortunately, seen church leaders justify their sin by pointing to the fruitfulness of their ministry and saying, well, how, why would God bless our ministry if you're saying what we're doing is wrong? And I would just say, God does all kinds of amazing work through broken people, and at times, even very sinful people. In fact, Paul says, at one point, even people that are preaching the gospel with wrong motives, selfish gain and selfish ambition, God still can work through. It's amazing how he does that. He doesn't affirm their, their sin, but he does affirm God's grace in his ability to work through us. But we should never, ever sit back and look at sin and, and not, not mourn or grieve over it. And the Corinthians know what's going on with this man, and it's like they're doing nothing about it. And who knows, maybe the guy was a wealthy man and they didn't want him to stop giving. Or he had a lot of influence and they didn't want to lose influence. I don't know what their motives, but clearly Paul is saying you've done nothing. And this is the problem. It's not just the man's sin, it's the fact that you've remained silent. Now I want to be really clear 
Paul's not referring to non-Christians here in terms of sitting in judgment. He's not giving us permission to sit in judgment on those who are outside the faith or those who don't yet believe in Jesus and have received the, uh, the, the knowledge of God through the Spirit. In fact, he makes it really clear in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those outside, or is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. In other words, let him deal with that. But it's amazing, isn't it, how we've gotten this so backwards? We sit in pride, harshly judging those outside the church while we soft pedal it with those inside the church failing to address the sin that we ourselves are committing or that we're watching being committed in the name of Jesus all around us. Paul's also not telling us, to be clear, to disassociate with people who don't yet follow Jesus with non-Christians. In fact, he wrote an earlier letter, it seems, that they misunderstood. So Paul has to clarify again in verses 9 through 10, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since they would, then you would have to go out of the world. So he's saying, I'm not telling you to just remove yourself from the world. I'm telling you to live in the world as a distinct people who deal with the sin within the church, not out there. See, Paul knows that God has saved us not only so that we might spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth forever without sin, suffering, and death, but he also set us apart now so that we would be a display of what God is like and the way we treat one another, the way that we live in contact with each other, how we engage in relationships with one another. In a sense, like Paul says to the church in Ephesians 5, we're to be imitators of God as dearly loved children and so that people could look at God's kids and find out what God's family's like. That's why Paul's confronting this sin. And the sin he's confronting, to be really clear, is the the church doing nothing about sin that is public and destructive and ruining the fame of Christ. See, our sin, when we continue to engage in ways that are broken, and sin always affects relationships, to be really clear. There's no such thing as autonomous sin, as though you can sin and not hurt anybody. Our sin tells a lie to the world about what Jesus is like, and it leads people away from wanting to join God's family. It's not as though it just affects us. It affects his fame, And my observation, if we're not careful, is that we either become separatist or accommodationist. Separatist, we just go like, we're removing ourselves from the world. In some ways, we are afraid, like, we, like God's power isn't strong enough to make us a holy people in the world, so we feel like we have to remove ourselves from the world, and that's not what Paul wants here. He wants us to stay in the world and be a, a taste of what God's like, to be a picture of his love, to be a display of his glory. But some of us just become accommodationists who just become like the world and we have zero distinction. And therefore we have no, no good news to offer because our, our message isn't just words. Remember last week we talked about it. it comes with power, it comes with an expression, it comes with a life. So Paul offers another alternative. Instead of separating from the world or just becoming like the world, he says, just stop disciplining the world trying to force them into a Christian ethic 
Stop judging them when they don't conform to you. Instead, enter into the world as a people who are being transformed by the power of the gospel as a loving witness in the world. Deal direct with any sin that's preventing you from being that kind of people. And then as you do it, do it in a way that restores people in the community instead of rejects them. See, what, what Paul wants to do in this letter is to make sure even in how you confront sin, it should look different than the way the world confronts brokenness. See, I, I'm... Uh, I own a couple homes in Tacoma that I rent out. If I, if I rent it out to somebody, I do a background check. If I found out in their background that they have destroyed a few other homes before mine, they're not staying in my house, right? So when people get evicted, they aren't getting evicted for the purpose of restoration. Nobody's evicting a tenant saying, I'm evicting you so you'll come back in a month as a different person and then I'll let you live here again. That doesn't tend to be how it works. Like if you belong to a club in the world and they, they ask you to leave the club because you've been violating all the policies and procedures of the club, they're not doing it so that in a month or two you'll change your mind and come back as a different person. There's no restorative, redemptive work generally in why we would remove people from a club or a situation in the world. But in the church... The goal is that in the way that we even discipline one another, not only would it be an aroma of grace to the world and how we lovingly care for each other, but it would lead to them being restored as a different person in community. That's the goal. We're gonna to come to that in a bit. So Paul offers church discipline. It's not a way just, just to purify, we're gonna to get to, but to give the picture of what Christ is like in how we do it because his name is being defamed. So not only does it protect his reputation, but it does purify the church. To, be, to say it again, the church doesn't stay pure by removing herself from the world. This church stays pure by addressing the sin within her and then removing them if necessary. We'll come back to that because that may sound harsh, but we'll come back to it. So how are we gonna deal with ongoing, unrepentant sin in the church? Paul says, verse three, for though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. First of all, Paul wants to be really clear, even though he's not there, he's letting them know, here's what I think about this. And he, he, if you remember, he sent Timothy also as an imitator. If you know much about the letters to Timothy from Paul, there's a lot in there about purity. So Paul, Paul's sending an example of purity to bring a message of purity for the church. And what Paul wants to be clear about is he says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In other words, he's not afraid to call sin, sin. I think these days we're afraid to call it what it is. We want to call it like behavior problems or difficulties or struggles. Or we try to give a different name to it instead of going, no, it's sin. What the Bible calls sin, we're going to call sin because God gets to say what is wrong. And sin, to be clear, if you're not a Christian, is anything that doesn't align with the character and nature of God. So to sin is to fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the visible expression of what God is like. So to fall short is to, to fail to tell the truth about God with our lives. That's what sin is. And whenever we do that, we need to call it that. I, I, I don't know if you've been in these situations, but you know how you learn how to tolerate people after once in a while? And you just kind of go like, well, that's just Jim. You know, if you're Jim, I'm not trying to point you out. You know, or that's just Mary. Mary, I'm not thinking of you, just to be clear. But, but what we end up doing is we give sin in a person's name. We go, we just, well, that's just who they are. And I would just say, no. 
That, that, as soon as you say that's just and you put someone's name in place, you've basically said, especially if they're a Christian, I want to be clear about this, you've said they are their sin and since we have to just tolerate with one another, one another we just tolerate sin. Instead of going like, no, that's Jim and what he's doing is wrong and we need to love him enough to talk to him to his face about what he's doing because it's hurting him and it's hurting his relationships and it's hurting the fame of Christ. Paul continues. First of all, I'm gonna call it sin. This is my judgment on it, it's wrong. Verse four, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now remember, Paul is concerned not just with this man's sin, but the reputation of Jesus, so he's confronting the whole church. When you are assembled, he says it to all of them. He also knows that they're complicit in the matter. They've been letting this go for a long time. So now he's going, next time you're together, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Notice he says the name of the Lord and the power of the Lord. So he's like, you're representing his fame and he is with you and he's powerful. Don't forget, this is the resurrected king. It should sober us all a bit. He says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice the redemptive peace there. We'll come back to that in a moment. That he would be saved. 11, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Notice Paul isn't just addressing the particular sin of this man, but any other sin that's bringing disrepute to the name of Jesus and destruction to the church. A little side note, all the, the sins that he just uh, listed, those are the exact sins that Moses listed in Deuteronomy when he said you're supposed to expel the brother or sister who's continuing to engage in those sins, okay? So he's, some of you go like, man, the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore. Well, Paul would disagree with you. He's actually using the exact list in Deuteronomy as he lays this out for us. It's also clear in this situation, this has been going on for a long time, so those of you who are like, man, I got someone I gotta go talk to after the gathering, man. I saw them sin this last week and I'm gonna go get them. No, <laughs> you should love them. In fact, if you're in mission community with them or DNA group, that should be an ongoing every week conversation. How are you doing? Where are you at with that, brother? I'm gonna pray for you. How can I encourage you? Like that's, this is not a way of giving you all an excuse to go and remove somebody, especially if they just get on your nerves, okay? Just to be clear. This is an ongoing public Sin that's ruining the reputation of Jesus and destroying the witness of the church in the city. Now it's important, I think, that we draw from Jesus here. Paul would have this in mind, so I want to take you to Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is why at Doxa we regularly say we don't talk about people, we talk to people. So if you find yourself going and telling somebody else what somebody did do, you're already walking in the wrong way. Like if someone hurt you, sinned against you, your job is to go right to them. Not to make it a prayer request in a meeting, you know. Not, not, it's just, you know, I'm not gossiping, I'm not slander, I'm not tearing them down, I just gotta pray about this. No, no, if someone sinned against you, go talk to them. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. In other words, that's the end of it. Look at we're doing well. By the way, listen doesn't mean he necessarily agrees with you or she agrees with you. It means that they're willing to submit themselves to another brother or sister who wants to speak into their life and walk together towards faithfulness to Jesus. It's not a heavy-handed way of saying, I told you what to do and you didn't do it. That's not what he's talking about. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen 
Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if it doesn't go well, bring somebody else with you that loves them, cares for them. If you refuse to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And this is, you know, this is the community around you. It's not on a stage, just to be clear. Uh, it, it's, you know, who, who knows this person, is in relationship with this person. Probably their missional community or their DNA members. Make sure that, that they're getting around this person and loving this person towards obedience. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him, to be as a, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, which is another way of saying, treat him like he's not yet a Christian. Okay, just to be clear, that's what that phrase means. Jesus is going like, maybe, maybe the person doesn't have a changed heart that's leading to a changed behavior, and so begin to treat them as one who maybe hasn't been changed yet. It, it isn't a way of saying, like, push them out, because look at how Jesus cared for the Gentile and the tax collector. He brought them in. He ate with them. He loved them. He, he wanted to lead them towards his grace and kindness. That's where things are at with this Corinthian church. They're at the place now where they need to remove this man from normal Christian fellowship. And it, the, the language sounds severe, and I just want to be clear. It's because the stakes are high. This is Jesus' fame. This is the purity of his church. This is a person's soul. This isn't just like membership in a club. This is eternity. Paul knows if the, this is left unchecked, not only will it continue to ruin the fame of Christ, it will destroy the church and this man will be lost. That's why discipline is a grace. Paul goes on, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now this concept of getting rid of the old leaven would bring in these people's minds, they'd bring them right back to the Exodus story. And many of you are familiar with this, where the Jews celebrated, they, they had a feast together. Now every year they celebrate the, fast, the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread to remember how God delivered his people from Egypt. If you, write, if you remember, they prepared that night. God said, get rid of all the leaven in the house Make for yourselves bread that's unleavened bread. The reason why is because if you have yeast in the bread and you travel for a long time, that yeast keeps working itself through and eventually will rot the bread, which means it'll rot all the other bread or things that it's touching. And so because God knows his people are gonna be journeying through the desert for a long time, he says, I want you to get rid of all the leaven and only have unleavened bread prepared to bring with you. He also instructed them if you might Remember to kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house, the sides and the tops, and then eat the lamb inside of the house, all of it. And if they had a small family, they're supposed to bring more in together, so they would, they would eat the entire lamb together. And then God, as he passed through to bring his final judgment to Egypt, would pass over the houses that had the blood on the, the doorpost of the house and preserve their firstborn son's life. I don't have enough time to teach more on that, but it is important for this particular passage to understand that leaven then later became known as a metaphor for sin. That, that through Jesus, the Passover lamb, whose blood was shed on the cross, and we then put our lives in him, we like that first family in Egypt, in a sense, are inside the house of Christ with the blood of Christ covering us so that the judgment and wrath of God for our sin passes over us. 
And the leaven has been removed, not through our own efforts, but through the work of Jesus Christ, that all our sin was put on Jesus at the cross. So at the cross, he not only died for our sins, but removes it from us. So that's why Paul says, you are unleavened. You don't have sin in you anymore. So start acting like you believe that. Live like it. You're already holy. Live as God's holy people. So he's saying purify the church because here's the deal. Your sin affects other people. It's like the person who's in the bottom of a boat, you know, uh, he's drilling a hole in the boat and everyone's going like, we're all gonna drown. He goes, no, 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 this is my part of the boat. And that's what it is to be in the church and you just let sin go, it affects everybody. We're not an island. Years ago, I was preaching and I started feeling hot while I was preaching. And at the end, I, I, I you know, got down and I was like, what is going on with me? And, and I realized there was a swelling in my lower abdomen and I didn't know what it was from. And I showed my wife and she's like, you gotta go to the hospital. We get to the hospital, find that we find out I have MRSA. Now, some of you know what that is. Like, that's really bad. And pretty soon everyone's like hazmat. You know, everyone's running away from me. <laughs> They're like putting me in this like closed in area. Why? Because it's highly contagious. And if that spreads, it's bad news for everybody in the hospital. Paul knows that's what this sin is. It's like leaven. It'll spread. It'll affect everybody. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, he says. In other words, when we get together, we're gonna celebrate Jesus and what he's done for us. We don't do it with the old leaven. We, we gotta deal seriously with sin, the leaven of malice and evil, but instead, we're gonna celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, we're gonna speak to each other. We're gonna talk to each other. We're gonna address sin directly in our community because what we do affects everybody here. I want to be clear, our goal is in removing people from fellowship is redemptive, not dismissive. Let's look at, look at what he says about how we engage in this. Verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. But I want to say it really clearly. Dis- discipline is meant to preserve souls. The goal here is salvation of this man. The destruction of his flesh is referring to sin nature. It's referring to what we were before we came to Christ. It's very possible that Paul is realizing this man only claimed to be a Christian. He's he's in the community of faith, but he isn't a man of faith. He's part of the covenant community, but he hasn't received the, the beauty of the covenant. That he hasn't had a transformed heart that changes him from the inside out and his behavior is potentially an evidence that he has a hard heart, not a new heart. So Paul is saying, don't treat him as if he's a Christian. That will be the worst thing you could do for him. Don't give him the illusion that he's inside the house under the blood of the lamb without leaven in his life. Because the day of the Lord is gonna come and he will not pass over those who've not taken faith in Jesus Christ and found refuge under him. So Paul knows if you keep treating him as though he's no different than everybody else, one day he's gonna face Jesus and he's gonna be surprised when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And he's saying to the church, if if you don't do something about this, this man's gonna go to eternity separated from God forever. His soul is worth much more. Come on, love him. Do what is best for him. So what do we do? First of all, do we deliver it? We deliver him over to Satan, Paul says. Now, if you're new to, to Christianity, you're going, whoa, hello. That's a little harsh. But it's already true if you're not a Christian, to be clear. The Bible is really clear that apart from faith in Jesus, just like the Israelites were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, 
you are a slave to sin and Satan. That you can serve one of two masters. You can serve Jesus Christ or you can serve Satan. The Bible's really clear, but you may not agree with that. We believe Jesus clearly taught that. And so if if this man is already under the rule and reign of Satan, Paul is just saying, just let him know that. Instead of being under the deception that he's walking in submission to Jesus Christ, only to find out one day he never knew Jesus. So in other words, turn him over to what is already true of him. He's already living like a slave. And pray that the wickedness of sin and the hopelessness hopelessness of not experiencing the grace of being in Christian fellowship would wake him up to his need for a savior. That like Paul says in Romans 1, God turns us over to our sin so that we would see how utterly sinful sin really is so that we might turn to the one who can save us from our sins, Jesus Christ. Some of the specifics, because you go, what, is that? what does this include? Clearly communicate to this person and the believers that are in fellowship with him that he's no longer formally a member of the church and he can no longer participate in activities that only a Christian could act- involve himself in. One of those would be not taking the Lord's Supper, which is likely what's meant when it says not even eat with such a one. For them, the, the Lord's Supper was a meal that they ate together. It wasn't like a little cracker and cup. So for them, that was a weekly meal they had. And so he's saying, don't let them have the meal with you anymore. Because in so taking of the meal, he actually is drinking condemnation on himself because he's making a mockery of the cross that he doesn't even believe in. In fact, I would say this, as you come to the table this morning, the Lord's Supper is really a form of, of, of discipline in kind of a miniature form. Because every time we go to it, we're meant to have a, a mini spurt of a warning that every time we take it, we would remember our sin put Jesus on the cross, which would lead us to hate our sin. Knowing we're forgiven, it would also mean we don't want to keep sinning. And there's a sobriety that when we come to the table, I mean, we should do it with great joy because our sins are forgiven, but we should do it with great sobriety because we don't want to keep sinning. Amen? And the person under discipline is by definition one who's dug his heels on the ground and says, I don't want a warning. I don't need grace. I don't care about my actions and how they affect people. For this person coming to the table, eating the supper, ceases to be grace for them and instead it becomes a danger because they're eating to their own condemnation, making a mockery of the cross. So it's really an act of grace to say, don't come to the table until they realize, I've sinned. I've, I've, I've rebelled against a holy God and his son died for my sins. I wanna stop sinning and I wanna follow Jesus. I wanna receive his grace, but I wanna live on, in submission to my brothers and sisters who can help me not to continue in sin. Paul also says, don't associate with this person if they continue to call themselves a Christian. To be clear, this does not mean have zero relationship with the person. It doesn't mean we completely shun people. I wanna make sure that's clear. The word associate is, you know, you think business. This is a business partner. Means to entwine yourself with. It carries the image of a vine wrapping itself around the trunk of a tree. The point here is be careful that you don't get entangled with the person to the degree at which you begin to engage in the sin with them. That's the point. It's not keep them away, but rather be careful because the sin that they're engaging in is ruining people. For instance, if we had a young man here, which we don't, that I know of yet, who regularly threw parties, got women drunk, and then took advantage of them, If this man were under church discipline, we would ask the women of Doxa to no longer attend his parties. Certainly not date him because of the way that he would hurt them. 
but we would continue to call him to repentance. If he came together on a Sunday gathering, we'd welcome him here and say, please receive the grace of God again as we preach the gospel and we would pray for your repentance today. When I was in Tacoma, we had a guy who regularly came to a missional community and he was a heroin user and he would show up with just full of heroin and he was dangerous to the kids. And they said, hey, we're willing to pay for your drug rehab. We wanna love you, help you get some help. And he refused to receive it. And they said, we can't continue to have you be in community with us if you continue to be a destructive person in this relationship. And finally, they had to remove him from fellowship, said you may no longer come to the missional community. Certainly you can come to the gatherings, but we're gonna have people sitting with you and just protecting uh, uh, people from you if you come in with heroin in your, in your veins. And sure enough, the man eventually repented of his sin, was restored to community, got into uh, rehab, and is now a healthy, clean man. Praise God. Because the desire is not rejection, but restoration. That's what our hope is. Paul's later letter, and I'm gonna end with this, gives us some hope that maybe this man actually changed. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. It's a later letter. For even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, even though I did regret it. For I see that the letter, it really grieved you, though for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Family, our hope here is that we'd love each other enough to say things that we might even regret later on because it's hard but that we wouldn't regret it because we knew it led them to repentance, which led to salvation, which led to restoration. And that's the goal. Amen? Family, I'm really gonna call us to start with talking to each other directly. If that doesn't work, bring another friend with you. If that doesn't work, bring some leaders with you to help you. And if that doesn't work, we have to lovingly help our brother or sister really realize their need for Jesus through these steps. And I know they're not easy, but we better do them with grace and love, with the hope of restoration. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd help us to live in obedience to your word. Even if any of us are in the room and we've refused to listen to brothers and sisters who've been talking to us about our sin, give us the spirit of humility to listen. Help us to be sober-minded before the God of the universe who gave his son to die for our sins enough that we would say, God, help me not to keep on sinning. And Lord, where we've shrunk back and not loved our brothers or sisters well, we've just turned to turn the eye away and just said, I don't even want to look at it. Lord, forgive us. We want to love better than that. So help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.